Uh, we're actually going to talk about politics today, so um, get excited. Uh, this will be fun. Um, but uh, I wanted to just take a moment and pause. There's been a lot of loudness and many voices uh, around this subject uh, in the last weeks, months, years. And uh, I love it when we have kind of a worship song to go between after announcements. Um, but I want to I just pause, take a moment of silence. Um, so I'm going to give you a few minutes or a few moments just to, just to kind of quiet your soul a little bit. Uh, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in to our topic for the day. So would you just take a minute and uh, enjoy uh, a moment of stillness? So God, you are the one who says to the storm, peace be still. And it's true that um, in many of our hearts there has been a storm raging. Um, We live in a society that more than ever is on all the time. Voices, ideas coming at us from all angles and through various forms of technology. Infiltrating our soul, sometimes causing us to marinate in things that we might not want to be marinating in. And it's precious few moments that we get to be quiet and to be before you. And coming together in worship is one of those moments of stopping and pausing and looking towards you. And it's our heart to invite you to move in our lives right now um, by your spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for your work on the cross, which makes possible the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we don't say those words just to be repeating theology back. We actually believe that the living God is moving in our midst as the church is gathered together here in this place. And in this area of our culture, the area of politics, we know that there needs to be a great deal of careful thinking, healing of our hearts, um, trusting in your power. And so we want to invite you to do that work in us this morning as we take this time. Would you watch over us and, and guide us? Guide me, Lord. Allow your words in scripture to come forth with clarity and impact for their redemptive purposes in our lives. That's our prayer, and we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So uh, I was in Chicago a week before last and talking with a pastor friend of mine, and he used to pastor a church in a college town uh, just near Chicago, uh, similar in some ways to where we live. Um, in fact, I had lived in that town, so I, I know it well. 
Uh, and when uh, Trump was elected in 2016, uh, there became a rift in the church that he was pastoring. And there were calls on, on sort of both sides of the rift for him to act in certain ways. And uh, at the end of the day, he just, he just wasn't able to bring everybody together. And so he decided to leave. He went out to just sort of a small rural church. It was a pretty good-sized church in this town. Uh, and he had to leave. And it tells you a little bit about the power of politics, right? And the power of politics in a, in a church community, uh, but even just in our world in general. And, uh, and, and he said to me that the, the church is still without a pastor, uh, and they still have a big rift in the, in the church. And so, um, you know, he's, he's praying for them. Um, was at a conference in October and listening to some other pastors, particularly ones who are pastoring multi-ethnic churches. And sometimes when uh, you uh, sort of entering into some of the difficult conversations that we have around multi- multi-ethnic church, you also get into some areas, political uh, conversations. And, and a couple of them shared how um, in the season that we've had the last few years, they have stood up to maybe make a comment on what's happening in society uh, and to try to really do it from a biblical uh, position and have had people on both sides of the political aisle up and leave their church during the sermon and never come back. And so you see in that the power of politics. In fact, I've experienced a little bit of that as well. Uh, There was a a day a number of years ago where I, I, I was trying to speak into a controversial issue and I'll never forget, immediately afterwards, one family left, and another one uh, came up and was really upset. And, and their points were completely opposite, right? So we've been navigating a really difficult kind of season um, in our culture, and our world, but then also uh, in the church context. And so I want to preach into that, speak into that a little bit today with the help of God's Word, of course. We are back in the book of Acts, and... Um, I'm so excited to be back in the book of Acts, actually, but I don't have time to really talk about my excitement because I'm going to need the entire time that we have, I think, uh, to work through what we're going to talk about today. You know this is a a big subject. So uh, would you open up to Acts 17, Acts 17, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. This is where we are now in our process going through the book of Acts if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll, we'll uh, actually, you don't need to raise your hand anymore. I keep forgetting. There now, now that we're in this building, we've now added the Bibles into the seats in front of you. So even closer, uh, grab a Bible from the chair if you don't have one. Acts 17, it's page 871 in that particular Bible. And there's going to be an exchange that occurs in this text that is going to kind of get political. And that's going to give us an opportunity to talk about politics this morning. So it is President's Day, seems like a fitting time to do it, but it also just matched up with where we are in the book of Acts. Uh, Now, we're in Paul's missionary journey. I don't have a lot of time to talk about the ins and outs of of where we are. Hopefully next week I can do a little bit more uh, backfill of our context now getting back into this study of Acts. But uh, you just need to know today that Paul is uh, with Silas, uh, going around, and they're starting churches in various towns. They, they're kind of in northern Greece, what we now would be northern Greece. So if you don't know these names, you, you know that general region of the map. That's where they are. Verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. It's the same one where we've got a book written to the Thessalonians in the New Testament. So this is really the birth of the church in that place, where uh, then we'll, ne- we'll later get a letter written to them by Paul. 
uh, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And and let me just pause there. Um, The topic today is going to be politics, but um, in the grand scheme of what God is doing in the world, um, that's, that's a small topic. Um, although it touches on all the big themes, the really big theme, the big question for those of you who might be visiting with us today or people who are seeking questions of faith, this is really the big question to you. Why did Christ need to suffer and rise from the dead? And so I just want to flag that um, for you to, to be on a journey. And hopefully today we'll help you answer that a little bit, but maybe in the coming days. That is the core. Everything that we talk about stems from the answer to that question. And we never want to stray far from asking that question and answering that question. Why did Christ have to suffer and rise from the dead? That is at the very center of the Christian faith. Moving on and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, um, the word Christ uh, has, can, can be translated also Messiah, um, or in English it would be the anointed one. And the anointing was used in the Old Testament for Three different kinds of people primarily, the prophet, the priest, and the king. So this statement about Christ is is a statement about him being prophet, priest, but then, as we're going to talk about today, king. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. There we have it again, over and over again in the New Testament. Luke, in particular, calls out when the women are leading, when the women are contributing, when the women are apart, um, they're noted for their contribution. And here, these leading women are noted in Luke's telling of what happened in Thessalonica. Verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob starting to get political, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Now, who's Jason? Jason, probably one of those devout Greeks who was part of interacting with Paul's teaching and part of the birth of the church in Thessalonica. So, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, this is verse 6, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. Now imagine what it would be like to be accused of acting against against the decrees of Caesar. Uh, Imagine living in authoritative, under an authoritative regime like like the Caesars were, and the power that they wielded, and to be called uh, out in that setting would be quite frightening. Saying that there is another king, Jesus. So let me read that again. This is really important. And Jesus and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. I love How so often in the New Testament, maybe particularly in Luke, the truth is put in the mouth of the non-believer. So it's actually true that Jesus is a king. 
It's true that he's another king. But Luke, and potentially because he's very uh, sensitive to the dynamic, the political dynamic of calling Jesus king outwardly, puts it in the mouth of the accuser. It's a beautiful strategy. Same thing happened with Jesus when he was going to the cross. Pilate asks him, are you king of the Jews? He says, you have said it, right? So we know that Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is king, but he's figured out how to say it in a way that's going to enable the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, to continue to be distributed in Roman territory. Verse 8, And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason, and the rest, they let them go. And really the phrase that I want us to hone in on is that one in verse 7, where it's accused of them that they're trusting in Jesus, who is another king. I want to talk about the kingship of Jesus. I want us to remember today who the real king is. So we're going to get a little bit theological, biblical about that. And then we're going to dive deeper into um, the question of how that applies in our current circumstances. So um, let's take some time together uh, to wrestle with that. First of all, let's talk about Jesus being a king. The kingship of Jesus is deeply rooted in the Old Testament, and it's, it's pervasive throughout the New Testament. Uh, in fact, the New Testament culminates with Jesus coming on the scene, dressed in a robe, and on that robe around his thigh, it says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so the kingship of Jesus is all throughout the New Testament, and it is hinted at, it is, there's a harbinger of it in the Old Testament. Uh, and that's what I want to look at uh, to begin with, is back in the Old Testament, sort of the category that Jesus steps into, which is the divine king. So would you turn with me to Psalm 2? It's on page 418 in the Bible that you have. Psalm 2. Uh, and in Psalm 2, uh, this is probably one of the, the locus classicus for this conversation about Jesus being king. Of course, Jesus, um, you know, comes later, although we believe in an eternally existent Jesus, he takes on flesh later. Uh, and so in the psalm, it's talking about King David. But you'll see that King David never actually fulfills the prophecy of this psalm. And so in that sense, it's looking forward to a greater king than David. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he fulfills that prophecy in himself. And as I read this, this uh, psalm, um, I'd like you to kind of get into the emotional space to be able to receive what it's saying, because it's going to say some very strong things about the divine king and the power of the divine king. But I'd like you to be able to set that against what's happened in history with respect to kings. We as human beings have endured through eons under very harsh, uh, oftentimes diabolical kings and ruling authorities who, if you remember through history, have done uh, terrible things and there have been moments in the history of time where God would, people would be calling out to God, would you do something? Would you bring your power to bear on what is so awful and horrific and broken in our world today? And it's in that sort of vein that this psalm is written. Why do the nations rage? So that's, we, we have it there. It's been raging in the nations ever since we can remember. And the people's plot in vain. 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the first part of the psalm. And it sets up sort of the recall of the the nations raging and all the powerful forces at work in our world when it comes to authoritative rulership. Over against that, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I, the Lord, have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so we've got this world where the nations rage and people seize power and they wield it in horrific ways. And there's trauma and pain and suffering that results. And against that is the proclamation that there is a greater king who someday will restore all that's been broken who will wield his power, will bring his force to bear to deal with the injustice on the earth. And what the Bible teaches us, reaching back into that initial proclamation of the kingship, the divine king, is that at the end of the day, there's ultimately only one king. And as followers of that king, Jesus, we are part, before we're part of anything else, of what we might view as his political party. And the psalm is careful to encourage us to align ourselves with this king because of the awesome power that this king wields. And because of the reality that one day he will assert his dominance over all the rest. And on that day, you want to be aligned with that powerful king. Who, by the way, is also a savior. A sacrificial lamb who gave himself in love 
to restore you in relationship to God. He's got all the power and all the goodness all woven together. And as we think about politics, as we think about our current moment, as we think about navigating this season, it is extremely important for us to keep that vision of the divine king who's the only one who's really reigning anyway right now. Strong in our imaginations. Daniel is a good example for us in this. In the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, you know, the, the, the Jews are taken into exile and Daniel is one of the ones who goes into exile. And he's, he's kind of like the beleaguered minority among the beleaguered minority um, in Babylon, which is a superpower. And he's trying to remain faithful to God in Babylon. But he's plagued with visions and dreams of the powers who are going to follow one upon the other like waves on the beach. And one of them will be Alexander the Great and so-and-so and so-and-so. And he's, he's tormented by these visions of horror and abuse and being an exile and being the beleaguered minority. And in the midst of those visions, he gets another vision, which ties directly to Psalm 2. Let me read it to you. In Daniel 7, 13 through 14, Daniel, it's written, I saw in the night vision, so after he's had these these visions about the impending doom that's coming with these awful world leaders who will follow the one that's currently reigning. He then sees this vision in the night. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so the vision amongst all the subsequent leaders and the horrific things that they would do is that one day there'll be one leader, one king who's so awesome and so great and so powerful that he's going to arrive on the clouds and he's going to exert his dominance over all that has taken place and every ruler that would seek to exalt him or herself against God. And so powerful is this king that he sits in heaven as he watches all that's happening and the little small kings who think that they have power, he laughs. And as we talk about politics, and I'm going I'm to touch ground, don't worry. We're up in the sky right now. I'm going to touch ground. But before we go there, this vision, of the Son of Man, the King Jesus coming on the cloud has to occupy a huge portion of our imagination. As we think about the future, as we think about um, 
this country, as we think about our own fears, it's that vision that we cannot let hold of. Just like sometimes we're in that moment like Daniel where it seems like all is lost. And then we have this beautiful vision. And it stands in contrast to the relentless news cycle, which would have us discover a new reason to be discouraged every single day, right? And new happenings that cause us to wonder what the future will be like for our children, right? And on and on and on. It is this vision of the heavenly king who is yet coming that stands against, that colors how we approach any conversation about politics. There is another king. In fact, there's only one king, actually, who's ruling. And his name is Jesus Christ. We need to hear that over and over again. We need to read it in scripture. We need to sing it, which we're going to do at the end of this sermon. We need to read it again. We need to monitor how much of the other news we're marinating in versus how much of the truth of the word of God are we marinating in. The Bible teaches us that faith comes by hearing. And what we need so often to meet the challenges that come in the arena of politics is faith. And faith comes by hearing. And so you need to hear about the vision of the heavenly king again and again and again. That's my first point. That's sort of the foundation space that we're in. That there is, in fact, another king. And he's powerful beyond any who ever has existed or will existed. And his name is Jesus Christ. And on his robe is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now this king also has a platform. Just like all political parties have, there's a platform that goes with it. Jesus' party has a platform. And so here we're going to touch ground a little bit. And I know this is probably where the car is going to get a little bit swervy. Um, and so uh, I'm going to try to hold on to the steering wheel. Uh, but but um, please resist the temptation as I go through this list and talk about the platform of the Jesus party. This is what I want to ask you to do. Because this is something I've discovered. And this is what, in talking to other pastors, I've discovered this is happening as well. And this is part of what's causing such a challenge in our world with respect to politics, is there is a temptation within us to take the person who's speaking and slot them into one side or the other. And some of you are like, okay, finally, Pastor Andrew's going to come out and tell us what he really thinks, which party he's a part of. He's going to show us his card, and, and then we're going to know. And, and the problem with that thinking is, is this, is that actually what I want to propose to you is a third way of thinking about the politics and the climate that we're in right now. So if you, if you try to push me or anybody else, if we do this to each other, into the us-them mentality, we're playing into, we're playing into what the enemy is already using in such powerful ways in our world to cause us to be divided against each other. So um, what I'm going to ask you, these are not my pet issues. This is really if you go on the internet 
and you ask, okay, what are the hot topics right now? You will find sites that aggregate sort of the issues uh, right now. And so this, this sort of comes from that, okay? This is, this is, these are not my, my pet issues. Um, but I am going to speak a little bit just briefly about them, and even, I can't even have time to speak many about, into many of them. Uh, from the, the platform that goes with King Jesus and the King Jesus political party, okay? Because that's the platform that as Christians, we hang on to. Now, what's complicated is that platform intersects with the other political parties in our society. And that's where it gets messy so often. That's where it gets tricky. So let's, let's jump in and see. So, so one of the issues is immigration, right? This is one of the things that we're talking about today. And what is the Jesus party stance on the immigrant? Okay. How would you answer that question? I'm not throwing it out right now. Although that would be interesting, I'm sure, and fun. Hopefully we'll get there. Um, Exodus 22, 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress, or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And I could probably pull out many, many verses that would speak in a similar way about the importance of, we have lots of words for this, sojourner is one of them. Immigrant would be another one. Now, how you live that out, how you live out that verse is where it gets complex, right? Um, it's actually a really good conversation. What does it mean uh, as a society to live out that verse? And some people will fall on the side of, well, we want to control the flow of immigrants into our country and be generous with how we would allow them. And others would say, we don't really want to control. We want to we want to open up the doors wide and have as many people come in as can. And guess what? It's your prerogative to have a position on that. You get to think through as an image bearer, somebody who has responsibility to make decisions, what the best way is to handle immigration in our current context. And you get to argue vociferously for your point. But as a member of the Jesus party, you don't get to treat those people as anything less than image bearers of God. And by those people, I should have said immigrants. You don't get to treat immigrants or sojourners or exiles as anything less than image bearers of God. That's what you have to align to. Now, how you live that out there's some flexibility. And in a healthy democracy, Christians will be salting and lighting, to borrow that phrase from the Sermon on the Mount, both parties, right? They'll be providing salt and light in both parties. And they will be able to have disagreements while remembering that their ultimately, their true allegiance is to the same party, the party of Jesus Christ. The Jesus political party flat platform is against racism. As part of the reconciliation to God, there's this vertical reconciliation. We've talked about this a lot, so I, I don't really have time to go into it. But all throughout the Bible, there is the reconciliation of the races. Promised and then provided for 
in Jesus Christ. And so the Jesus platform is for all people and for the reconciliation of the races. Now, does that question then come, become very complex in terms of its outworking? Yes, it does. And should there be lenience given for us to find our way? Yes, there should be. But the truth of the importance of reconciliation of all peoples is undeniable. We hold that because Jesus clearly teaches it. It's clearly part of the Jesus party politics. One of the issues that's current is the issue of women in our society and how they're um, honored and cherished and, and loved and compensated and on and on. The Jesus party is pro-women. We read that in the text. The New Testament goes out of its way to explain the incredibly important role that the women have in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we are pro-women in that way. That's, well, we don't get to choose. We, we, we follow the platform of our king. I was just in Chicago, and so we're part of a group of churches, 1,600 churches, and they have an organization which kind of brings all those churches together. It's the national office, they call it, and uh, it's a parachurch organization. It's, it's not the church. doesn't have elders, you know, but the, board, the, the chair of the board of directors is a woman, and I bring that up because we've been having this conversation as a church and there is a woman that, that we, are in, we are following her leadership in an important, significant way. And for some of you, I think that might be an encouragement. Um, and it's an encouragement as we continue to work out what does it mean to honor and cherish the women, women in our congregation in this place. The Jesus Party platform is pro-life. So a person is a person at conception. Psalm 139 seems to make that pretty clear. And there are all kinds of implications for being pro-life that touch just more on the, abortion of, the issue of abortion, but other issues as well. So that's our platform. Now, how we work that out in a healthy democracy, we, we might disagree how that gets woven into the fabric and the laws of our society. And that's okay. We can disagree. But we can't change the truth of what Jesus teaches. We could go on and on. The Jesus political party platform is pro-sexuality within the guidelines set out in scripture. It's pro-justice. I'm not sure why it's happened that there's been an argument about that within the evangelical world over the last season. Are we really arguing about whether or not God is just and for justice? He kind of invented it. Um, Pro-religious freedom. The Bible does not advocate religious coercion. Uh, Pro-truth. It's one of the Ten Commandments. People should tell the truth. Pro-individual responsibility. And pro-taking care of one another. So that's getting into the whole economic question, which is, I think, one of the most difficult ones 
for people to sort out, and they often just punt on. But the Bible teaches this reality that we as individuals are responsible, which is what one side hangs on to, but it also teaches that we're to take care of one another, which is sometimes what another side, the other side hangs on to. And how we fit those together is messy and complicated, and that's okay. We don't have to go to war with one another over it. We need to have debate and dialogue and disagreement and let the process work itself out. We could go on. We could talk about the environment and how God feels uh, about our care for the world that he made. Um, There's a lot in Scripture about that. Um, We are stewards uh, of this earth that we have been blessed to be living on. Uh, And I'm sure there are many other topics that you would want to talk about as well. What we believe about all of these and the other subjects uh, is going to potentially differ. And, And the result of that is that some of us as Christians whose primary allegiance is to the Jesus party are going to be called to salt and light one particular party. And some of us whose primary allegiance is to the Jesus party will sense a calling to salt and light the other, or if there ever is more than two, political parties in our democracy. Now, can you, can you imagine a context in which Christians serve as salt and light in both political parties, or however many there are? All the while maintaining their allegiance to Jesus Christ first and foremost and being advocates for members of the heavenly party. They come together and they actually have real dialogue about what is the best way to administer and to execute the Jesus party platform. but they keep loving each other as they do because they know that Jesus is first. Can we imagine, because I, I, I haven't seen it really, and, but can we imagine a context like that? Could we maybe think of becoming that kind of a place where we could have that kind of a dialogue with one another? And we could have that kind of a understanding of love that overrides it all. This is what it means to approach politics with a kind of a third option and a third way. And let me just explain this, that I'm not, in asking, in talking about this, I'm not imagining in my own mind that anybody would become less passionate about their, their politics. This is, so the solution that maybe we've taken, and, and I confess maybe this has been part of just navigating the complexity of this at times, has been really, really challenging as a pastor. Um, and so, you know, one solution to say, and churches are doing this quite a bit, is, well, we're just not going to talk about politics, right? We're just going to bracket that out. And, and so then we'll come together and we'll talk about all the other things, but we won't talk about that. And that somehow doesn't seem satisfying, right? Because if Jesus is really king of all the earth, then, then doesn't he have some implications for 
for this arena too? Yeah, he does. So what does it mean for us to have these kinds of conversations together? What does it mean for us to to hold on to this third option, this third third way? We don't have to get less passionate about politics. In fact, some of... I would, some of us, I think, we spend all this time on social media posting political thought, but we don't pull the trigger and get involved. And I would actually want to say to you, get involved. If you feel that strongly and that passionate, get involved. We, you know, in 20 years from now, we don't want to have preached a gospel that has all the Christians removing themselves from certain spheres of life because we haven't taught how to integrate the gospel with living out a life in that sphere. And some of us might be called into some serious political activity, and that's awesome. It's awesome to get involved. So the third way is to align with Jesus and then to salt and light both or all or however many parties that might exist. Now, here's the challenge that we're facing right now. This is under the the last point, the the other way. There's a cross-pressure that's making this extremely difficult. And that cross-pressure is the cross-pressure of partisanship. Now, the difference between partisanship and what we maybe historically have experienced. And I don't know that in this country we've ever really experienced it. It's always been somewhat partisan. But the partisanship seems to be ratcheting ratcheting up to a new level. Uh, And what that means is this, is that in order to be on the team, you have to embrace everything that the team stands for. And that's kind of poison for people like us. Because our allegiance has to first and foremost be to Jesus Christ. And so if we have to buy everything to be on the team, then that's going to run contrary. It used to be, and I'm sure it was never perfect, and and maybe it can be recaptured, that you could disagree and be on the same team. As that goes away, it becomes more difficult. We have to become more creative, and we have to watch more carefully about what we're getting in bed with when we enter into one political party or the other. See? This is the challenge that we're facing as Christians, and this is where we need to call it out and say, don't lose your allegiance to Jesus Christ just to be on the team. Okay? If you can't disagree then you can't be who God is calling you to be. And this is the part that feels particularly dark from my perspective. And this is the part that as a pastor has been extremely challenging because the pressure to fit each person into a box, us or them, and then, you know, in my case, to fit the pulpit into the box, us or them, becomes kind of overwhelming. And that's what my friend couldn't deal with back near Chicago, and so he had to leave because the pressure, the partisanship, the us and them sense, the fact that there isn't a third option 
becomes destructive to the conversation. So, you know, then you've got people who disagree with the party and then they stop getting invited to, 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 to the party. Um, that's what happened to Mitt Romney, right, when he, he dared disagree recently. So, so, so this is the, the part that's scary that I don't know how we grapple with except to be get, become very creative and, as I'm going to say at the very end here, to trust God has some unique ways to, to navigate through this. The partisanship element of it makes it very hard to be a Christian and actively engaged. And I know some of you, your frustration is because people have denied their Christian faith to be at the table. They've denied things about their Christian faith to be at the table, right? To be able to have a voice. That's a challenging dynamic that we're in the middle of right now. So here's what I would say. As that happens, and maybe it'll turn around, maybe there won't be that kind of darkness uh, in the future, um, that level of partisanship where people aren't talking anymore. You know, they're not going out for dinner after they disagree anymore, all of that. Um, how do we navigate that? And here's some, here's some just final reflections. And I know that in some ways I'm opening up a conversation. I'm not closing it. That's raising a challenge that we've got to grapple with and figure out how to deal with. Here's some closing recommendations for us. Number one, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how partisan it feels and how hard it seems, don't give up. Especially if you are one of those who's been called into political action. And I would recommend that all of us consider to what degree God would have us use our energy in this realm. It's, it's really... It's really not a thing where it's okay just to punt, right? We've got, we've, got to, we've got to be participants in this. We've got to see the opportunity to bring the gospel into a difficult area. So be present. Number two, stay focused on ideas rather than sides. There is so much pressure to move towards an us-them mentality and to think that that's the, these are the only two options that we have. And you're either with or you're against. And if you agree with one part of it, you agree with the whole thing. That pressure is killing. And we've got to break free from that and say, no, I don't fit those boxes. I'm a member of the Jesus party, and here's what I believe. And sometimes I agree over here, and sometimes I agree over here. Somehow, we've got to find that place, that space again. Don't forfeit your allegiance to King Jesus. If being in causes you to embrace things that Jesus doesn't embrace or reject things that Jesus does embrace, then don't do it. Make clear what you believe. So this is, a Nebu- this is the Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar in the golden image moment, right? And, and this is the trade-off that we're constantly being asked to consider You know, do I bow to this one thing so that I have the power to be able to move in this one area, um, but then I've sacrificed my allegiance to Jesus Christ? And the Bible would tell us, don't do that. Number four, love all, because that's the Jesus party platform. And I wanted to say, you know, 
Because the Bible tells us Jesus teaches love your enemy. But I don't even want us to think about the people in the other political party as our enemy. Because they're not. They're image bearers of God. Right? So if you do feel like they're an enemy, okay, love them because Jesus told you to love your enemy. But maybe don't think of them as your enemy. Okay? They don't really have to be your enemy. Just doing that is going to send a signal to the world. I had somebody come up and say after first service, I felt so convicted of my hatred of the other side. Right? That's good. We should feel that. We shouldn't be hating people on the other, across the political aisle from us. If you find you cannot love, then maybe the earthly kings have started to loom larger in your imagination than the heavenly one. Okay? If you find you cannot love, then maybe the earthly kings are looming larger than the heavenly one. In this church, I really hope that we can have robust dialogue, and, I, and I, it's my responsibility to help set the table for that. Okay? And that's what I'm partly trying to do today, to give you categories of how you can maintain your allegiance to Jesus and then still have disagreements and have a healthy dialogue in the midst of that. So I want to help set the table for that. It's my hope that we can have that because I think that's going to be good for our own minds. It's going to be good for the gospel. It's going to be good for the, the, the representation of Christianity in this place. But that's a hope, okay? That's, that's, a, that's a wish. What we have to have, what must we must have is love for one another. That's a non-negotiable. We must have love. So I hope we can have robust dialogue. We must have love for one another. And I hope we can kind of get out of some of the winning language. Like, yeah, there is a thing about winning in politics, but it starts to feel like winning is killing the other at some point. And that's not what we want. That's not what we want. These are image bearers. And then lastly, I would just say this. Don't freak out. Don't freak out if things get better for one side or another side, or I don't know if there's, don't freak out if things get worse. Things get, to me, more, more and more partisan, entrenched in partisanship, so there's less and less actual dialogue and debate of issues, okay? But even if that happens, don't freak out. Don't freak out, because he who sits in the heavens laughs. He's not laughing at people's suffering or pain or anything like that. He's laughing because these little pipsqueak, small k kings actually think they have some power in the world. But they don't, ultimately. Because there's only one capital K king of kings who is reigning over this world. And his reign is perfect. And his timing is perfect. And he has all these creative ways to deal with situations that seem past redeemable. I think of David, who was given the keys to the kingdom and was able to bring about the Jesus party platform, if you want to say it that way, in Israel to some degree, falteringly, but still was able outwardly to promote it. 
But then there were many times when Israel didn't have that capacity. And so you get stories like Esther, right? Who's in the midst of a very horrific regime that is about to commit genocide against all her people. And God uses her in the most unexpected way to make a change so that his people are protected and so that he, they move forward and his, his vision, his plan is not thwarted. God is that creative. He's still that creative today. So don't freak out. Or think of Joseph, right? He was sold, supposedly dead, but then pulled out and sold to the Egyptians. And then he's in prison and then he gets stuck in prison and all is lost, right? And he becomes the most powerful man in Egypt and ends up saving people of Israel again. And then in an, another time, another instance. And then I think of Daniel, which I've already mentioned, who was in this foreign superpower, a beleaguered minority, and he, he maintained who he was. He wouldn't even eat, veg, he wouldn't even eat meat, only vegetables. And, and, and God worked through that circumstance for him to be able to have an impact. And we out of it, we get this huge vision of the Son of Man coming on the clouds, which, uh, portray, which is so prominent in the New Testament, this concept of the king who comes and enforces his power. So don't freak out, no matter what happens. Because King Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, is on his throne. And God, we confess that at times we haven't known how. I confess, Lord, that I at times haven't known how to speak out on some of these important things. And I, I ask your forgiveness for those times when I have failed to do so. And I'm probably not the only one. We want to be people who are so attached to the awesome vision of King Jesus that we're fearless when it comes to speaking the truth that accords with your will. So help us in this coming season. God, would you help us to love one another? Would you help us to speak truth? Would you help us to give space to one another, to see things differently? Would you help us to inhabit the place you've called us into, to be bearers, ambassadors? That's like a political word, to be ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven in this place. We pray it in Jesus' name.